You know, we're, we have this sermon series. We're walking through all these stories in the book of Acts, and we've called it Acts, the church on mission, because that's what it was. It was Luke's retelling of, of the church and, and the beginning of, of, these, of these incredible stories that God was doing amongst these new believers or Christians or disciples. And so I was thinking the other day, we watched, I know I'm a terrible parent, but we watched this movie called, you know, um, Mission Impossible with the kids, and... And, and I love uh, any time that Tom Cruise, what's his real name in the movie? Ethan. Anyways, any time this guy, Ethan, would get a message from the higher-ups, it would be this secret message, you know, and they would say, your, your mission, should you choose to receive it? And then he would hear about the mission and decide, yeah, I should go, you know, save the world. And they never said, your mission or, you know, anything else you think we ought to be doing. No, he said, this is your mission. That's it. We're the ones that tell you what the mission is. You go and you either do it or you don't do it. But this is the mission. Jesus, when he left to go back up to heaven, he looked at those guys on the mountaintop and goes, your mission, should you choose to accept it? He didn't say, now, you might have a better idea. Please let me hear about it or put it in the comment box. I'm going back to heaven. I'll read them. He said, no, this is the mission that you would go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I taught you, and don't forget I'm always going to be with you. That's the mission of the church. And so as we walk through this series through the book of Acts, that's our mission. We are going to be the church on mission if we are doing his mission. Now, churches get lots of other ideas. We're going to make it our mission to do this, this, or this. But if they forget the mission, they're not a church on mission. They're just a church spinning their wheels until everybody in that church dies because that's not multipliable. Is multipliable a word? I'm not sure. Anyways, today's title. Now, I've changed the title of this message three times this week. So instead of having just this or just this, I just included it all together. So today's title is The Church on Mission is Effective in Evangelism and Active in Discipleship. Now, before we get started on that, some of you, you already know some of my feelings on some of these terms, and it's confusing because we use these big words in the church, and it can be very, very uh, confusing to the outside world. I, I think that if you really look at the Bible, when Jesus gave that great commission, that whole process is discipleship. You know, that they come to know Jesus, and then they learn more about Jesus, and then they go out and make more people that would know, then know about Jesus. And it's this lifelong process, okay? Um, evangelism, there's even mornings when I wake up and I need someone to speak the gospel to me. Not because I need to be saved again, but because there's an area in my heart that I have not surrendered to the good news of Jesus. Does that make sense? Well, that's evangelism because it's speaking the good news to me. So that all these things, but for the sake of clarification and organization of my sermon, we're going to use these words, evangelism, discipleship, the way you think they're probably supposed to be used. There is, however, I want to make clear, no such thing as second or third tier Christians. Okay, now in the last few years, we've been lucky enough to get to go to some of these conferences where they teach you how to do discipleship. All these guys that have written books and they're like professional disciplers, they get up and they talk to you about that. Some of it's really good. However, I started to hear this, this idea that you become a Christian, and then somewhere down the, long, the line, you become a disciple, and then somewhere else along the line, you become a disciple maker. And I just don't see that in Scripture, okay? 
I mean, you become a Christian, this one, this one thing, and a Christian, a disciple, a Jesus follower, in my mind, those are all synonyms, okay? That, whatever you want to call yourself, Christian, Jesus follower, disciple, and we all have the same mission, okay? We don't get to have, uh, after I've had a Christian life for the first 10 years, now I get to become a disciple, I graduate to this new level. And then after you, I'm a disciple for a while. I get to become a disciple maker. And we're all like hanging plaques on our wall at the house. Now I'm a disciple maker. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus said, you're a Christian. Now Now you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Your mission, should you accept it, is to go out and share this gospel message with everyone. Okay? Like we said a couple weeks ago, even if you don't know anything yet, just tell people Jesus loves them. Okay? Just say... I don't know why, but God wants me to tell you that he loves you. Remember, God's already doing the work in their heart before you show up anyway, so you don't have to be nervous or scared about that. Okay, so let's start somewhere. Anyways, all of that to say, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11 today. <laughs> the terminology is not important. The reality is what's important. People need to become Christians. And people need to be taught how to think, feel, and act like a Christian. Okay, so if we can at least agree on those two things, then we can move forward. So we're talking about evangelism, proclaiming the gospel, and discipleship today, teaching people how to act, feel, and live like Christians. Evangelism has been described as one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. I really like that. You know, someone that has been begging their whole life, they found food, they would go and tell their beggar friends, hey, I found where the food is, wouldn't they? The great preacher... Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he talks about evangelism. He would say that to preach the gospel boldly is to deliver it as such a message ought to be delivered. I think most of us agree that this is the most important news. Gail agrees. Okay, but if I think about just our normal daily conversations with people or our online conversations and our news feeds, I would say it seems like maybe we're more interested with other news. No one said amen about that. If we're going to be the church on mission, we have to be effective in evangelism. This message is way too important for us to keep it to ourselves, okay? We have to be effective in it, and the starting point for effective evangelism is to be bold in our sharing. I want to tell you, maybe you've heard this phrase. I've heard this phrase a lot throughout my life. There's this phrase that goes like this. I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. Always be sharing the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Now, before you nod your head and say amen, I just want to not trick you. I don't like that. This idea that you can be kind to people and do good deeds to people, that's something that Christians should do. But that's not sharing the gospel. God the Father is the best at sharing grace and kindness and love without saying a word. When you woke up this morning, did the sun come up? Is he going to paint a beautiful sunset in the sky tonight? Does he send rain so that our foods and crops will grow so we can eat, provide for us? Does he give life by allowing women to get pregnant? Man, he is the awesome inventor of good deeds and grace. But someone still has to say the name of Jesus is the only way you can become, become a Christian or, or th there's no one to be saved. So he sends the church to proclaim the gospel. So yes, be good to people, but you got to open your mouth. And that's what we call evangelism. The other word we're talking about today then is discipleship. And simply it means teaching people from the Bible, by the way, 
how to think, feel, and act as a Christian. Don't have a conversation that starts like this. Well, this is what following Jesus means to me. I hate that. Tell them what following Jesus means to Jesus. Okay? I didn't mean to get angry. Acts 11, <laughs> verse 19 to 26. This is great. First, first missional church. Here we go. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that would be the Gentiles, Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Amen. The report of this then came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, you know, the apostles, the leaders, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas then left and went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is Saul who would eventually be called Paul. We read about his conversion a couple weeks ago. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Can we say a quick prayer? Father, we have opened your word. We're reading it. And, Lord, we admit to needing your help to understand it. Teach us today, Father, what it looks like to be the church on mission by proclaiming your name among those who do not know it and teaching them all things that your Bible tells us to teach them. We love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to break the title into two main points today, okay? So here we go. If you're a writer, main point number one, the church on mission is effective in evangelism. You know, one of our core values at Heritage is called relational evangelism. I think I got a slide up there. And this is the way we define that. An intentional building of relationships with those inside your sphere of influence for the purpose of sharing God's message of love and forgiveness regardless of how they respond. There's some passages there you should write down and go study later. But we have a key question with each of our core values, and the key question to relational evangelism is, with whom am I building an intentional relationship to share Christ's love? That's a little bit of accountability, because it, it implies that there has to be a strategy and intentionality behind doing relational evangelism. Does that make sense? There are going to be times where you don't build a relationship with someone before you share Christ because you're going to see them at the store or the waitress that waits on you or you're going to just run into someone that's walking down the road and they have a question for you and then all of a sudden that conversation can turn into a spiritual gospel opportunity. But then there are also times where God has given you relationships in your neighborhoods and in your families and in your places of work where if you'll be intentionally strategic about it, you can earn the right to have their ear, you can earn their trust, and you can share with them this most important message, and they will receive it. You'll be surprised. But even if you're afraid that they won't receive it right, we still don't stop relational evangelism, regardless 
of how they respond. So, few things. The church is effective in evangelism by, number one, having a cultural engagement mentality. Okay, the church is effective in evangelism by having a cultural engagement mentality. Look at verse 19. Now, those arose uh, who were scattered because of persecution over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So, when, when Stephen was martyred, when he was killed, the, the church kind of started spreading out. Maybe because they were afraid, maybe because of whatever, but regardless, it was prophecy fulfilled because what had Jesus told them in chapter 1? You're going to end up being my witnesses all over the place, to the ends of the earth. And so they move, and, and as they're going, they're speaking mainly to people that are like them. Okay, they're speaking to other Jewish people, people that were God's people from the Old Testament, people who had been waiting for the Messiah, and now they're telling them, hey, we found the Messiah. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks, the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Tim Keller, he calls these guys mavericks. I like that. John Stott calls them daring spirits. See, last week, Peter preached to Cornelius, right, because Jesus came to him in a vision and said, go preach to Cornelius. But it was, it was a kind of a one-off thing. These guys are doing something new. They were strategically taking the gospel to people that were not like them. Okay? You see that? They were specifically going to people that were not Jewish people. Okay, they were effective in their evangelism because they were not anti-anyone. They were pro, everyone needs to hear about Jesus. Very hard to be um, efficient and effective in gospel sharing when you are anti-somebody. We can be anti-abortion without being anti the lady who had an abortion. Are you with me? You can be anti-homosexuality without being anti-homosexuals. You can be anti-sin, okay, whatever, whatever. But if you're anti-people, if you're anti-anyone, let me tell you, you're in the wrong when it comes to the way Jesus loves people. You're in the wrong of when it comes to how he told us that we ought to go about doing this. And why would they want to hear anything you have to say? Sorry, again, to be angry. This group of people, these guys, they said, they probably asked this question, how are we going to talk to these people who are different than us? See, they were learning, in Paul's later words in 1 Corinthians, how to be all things to all people so that in the hopes that some, as many as possible, would be saved. They were saying, if we're going to go to these Greeks, these guys that cut their hair with a bowl and, you know, they shave their beards and they wear short tunics and... And they walk around, you know, and they talk about all this philosophy stuff. How are we going to how are we going to tell them about Jesus? They're not looking for the Messiah. That was that's our end. When we go to the Jews, we go, hey, you know, this Messiah you guys have been looking for all these years. We found him. So what's our end with this group of people who aren't looking for the Messiah? Hmm. But we have to go to people living in darkness. We can't sit in here in our safe place waiting for Jesus to return, basically telling the world to kind of fend for themselves. How can we be salt and light if we don't go into the darkness with this message of light? 
Which brings us to our second point. The church on mission is effective in evangelism by prioritizing the gospel. Look at verse 20. Some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Stick to the gospel. Stick to the gospel. Stick to the gospel. Grace is always a better message than judgment. Leading someone to the Lord, okay, really good plan. God loves you. God created you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you so that you could be washed in a way that would make you righteous in his sight even though you didn't deserve it. Bad way to reach someone? You know, because you do sins, you know, you struggle with commandments like one, two, three, seven, eight, nine. You're probably on your way to hell. Just want you to know. <laughs> Good luck. Bad, bad way to, to witness to people. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen those billboards. These men proclaimed the good news of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to see this. This is really interesting because to this point, people had been proclaiming the good news by going to Jews and proclaiming that they had found the Messiah, the Christ. These guys, they proclaimed the Lord Jesus. See, these Gentiles, they were not Jews waiting for the Christ. They were not Jews waiting for this Messiah to come and rescue them and save them from from the rule of Rome or whatever it was. However, this term in Greek, kurios, it means Lord. That was a term that they were familiar with because this term kurios described a God that they believed would bring them salvation. That's our end. You know this kurios, this God that you think can bring you salvation? I know the Lord who can actually bring you salvation because he is the one true God. That's our end. So they preached the Lord Jesus. See, to be a good evangelist, you need to know the gospel, but you also need to know your audience. You need to consider their interests. You need to consider their knowledge level so that you can best communicate this message of Jesus. If you go up to the non-believer and you go, have you been you know, justified? That, that's going to mean something completely different to them. Are you saved? Are you lost? These are weird questions. I don't, I don't know. I'm not lost. I've lived here my entire life. It's in a real big place, Lake County, okay? And it's his message, by the way, that we communicate, this message of Jesus, his message, which brings us to point number three. The church on mission is effective in evangelism by trusting God to do his part. Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So before you start thinking that being successful in your evangelism is just doing all these things I'm talking to you about, be, be careful, it's not about your skills, okay? Scripture tells us this whole thing is about Jesus. I love this. Jesus is the hero of the message. Verse 20, the good news about the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the goal of the message. Verse 21, they turned to the Lord. And get this, verse number three, Jesus is the source of power behind the message. The Lord's hand was with them. So Jesus, he's the hero of the message. He's the goal of the message, and he's the power behind the message. Amen? It's all about Jesus. You alone can rescue. I love that last song. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. It starts out with a silly question. Who, O oh Lord, can save themselves? It's just supposed to be one of those rhetorical questions. The answer is nobody. Nobody can save themselves. they got to know the message of Jesus. 
In order to be effective in evangelism, you must depend on the Lord's help. They were successful because the hand of the Lord was on them. So what does it look like to depend on the Lord's help? Well, you can see in in chapter 13, it goes on telling this story of of this new church at Antioch. In verse 1, it says, Now there were those in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. They named some of these guys, including Barnabas and Saul. And then in verse 2, it says this, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. Trusting in the Lord's help looks like worshiping through fasting and through prayer, through through being on our knees and begging him, saying, God, I've got this person in my heart that I need to share your message with. Go with me. Go before me. Put the words into my mouth so that I speak truth to them about your gospel message. We know that the really early, early guys in Acts 2, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that they fasted, that they prayed. They were worshiping. They were living this Christian life dependent upon God. Does your prayer and fasting and worship life look like you are dependent upon God? Or does it look like It's just these things that we do because we check them off to make it look like, you know, that we're Christians. The church on mission is effective in evangelism. Okay, main point number two. The church on mission is active in discipleship. Another one of our core values at Heritage is this. It's authentic community. If you've been a part of Heritage from day one, you would say, yeah, that's Heritage. Because that's something that we have always desired. To be authentic. Anybody here still from day one? Yeah. You remember when Sid would be preaching in the band room and then someone would just ask a question? Yeah. Or someone would stand up, Sid would be like, hey, so-and-so stand up and share your story about what happened this week in the middle of the sermon. Remember that? I miss that. It's authentic. There was this environment created from day one where people could actually stand up and say you know, what was going on in their heart, not have to come through the door and pretend like they were somebody they weren't. I really like that. So authentic community. Real people living real life together. And the key question, oh, write down those verses because you need to read those and study them later. By the way, you can find all the core values at the website with all the scriptures and these key accountability questions. Heritagecommunity.org. You can find them there. The key question, am I in a small group for accountability, encouragement, and spiritual growth? Some of you go, I hate small group. I don't want to be in a group of people. I hate people. (laughs) It's okay. You just need to be discipled into growing into liking people. I'm not trying to call you out. Sometimes, you know, I don't like being around a giant group of people. You know, we used to have a killer small group. And, man, there would be, like, sometimes 50 or so people, including kids. And every 40 minutes, I just got to stand up and walk down the street for a little bit and come back. That stresses me out, especially if it's in my home. (laughs) But you need to be in a small group for accountability, encouragement, and spiritual growth. The church is active in discipleship through a few points. Number one, accountability. Look at verse 22. The report of this, the report of this success going on with these Gentiles reaches back to the church leadership in Jerusalem. Okay? 
And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, let me be clear. This was kind of an effort in quality control, okay? Because you got Peter, James, and John over here, and they go, wait a minute. You're telling me that these Gentiles are coming to, to faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is coming on them the way the Holy Spirit came on us the day at Pentecost? They're experiencing those same things? Um, hey, Barney, would you go down and check this out for us? Because I'm not sure about that. There were some of these people, they were probably very curious, very, you know, they were probably suspicious about what was happening in Antioch. And then there were some of them that were probably really hopeful and wanted to help. And I think Barnabas, he was one of those guys. And so he, he, he went, because the other one's like, well, I'm not going to go down there with the Gentiles, you know. Some of them may not have even wanted Gentiles to come to know the Lord. Barnabas, he went. This new group of believers, they needed accountability. They had no leadership. This church was filled with brand new Christians from like all kinds of nations. And so they sent Barnabas to help, give, give direction. New believers today, they need accountability, okay? They need leadership. Well, what kind of leadership? Point number two, I'm glad that you asked. Encouragement. Look at verse 22 and 24. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted or encouraged them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas exhorted or encouraged these new believers. Perfect job for Barnabas, by the way, because his nickname, after all, was Son of Encouragement. He loved people. He loves people. That's the perfect kind of person to disciple the new believer. Perfect man for the job. Some of the other Jewish believers, they may have tried to quench this fire that was going on. They would have been too suspicious. You know, they, they would have said, I don't, I'm not sure about this. They, they might have come up with like a 10-step plan to prove that you're a Christian real quick. But not Barnabas. He wanted to applaud what the Holy Spirit was doing. He wanted to encourage it and fan that flame. An inflexible person may have come into this situation and, and they may have thought, you know, like, unfortunately, some of our past American missionaries, that, that they needed to all be like them. They would have gone into this new, new country and said, hey, you know, well, what it looks like to be a Jesus follower is to wear this clothing, sing these songs, and have these programs, you know, on Sunday and Wednesday nights. But that's not what Barnabas did. He wanted to encourage them. Instead of discipleship, it should be about helping the believers know the Lord better through his word. Are you with me? Help someone know the Lord better through his word. We talk about Christianity all the time. It's about trusting Jesus. Well, how do you trust Jesus if you don't know him? Trusting Jesus is a lot like trusting anybody else. The better I know somebody, the more I trust them. Some of you don't trust Jesus very well because you don't know him very well. You know where you get to know Jesus? bad mood today. So I, I didn't wake up that way. Barnabas encourages them, remain faithful to the Lord. How do I become faithful to the Lord? I find out what the Lord says I should do and I do it. That's only found here. Okay? You don't say to someone, this is what following Jesus means to me. You say, this is what following Jesus means to Jesus. Same thing. 
Barnabas was a good man. They throw that in there. Okay, well, the reason he encouraged them because he was a good man full of faith. Good men encourage other saints. Good men encourage other saints. Good women encourage other saints. Barnabas was a good man. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul would say, Therefore, encourage one another. Build each other up. Disciple makers, you should be known for stirring up each other to good works and good deeds and love. Let me ask you the question. Are you that kind of person? Are you that kind of disciple maker? When other people see you, other believers, do they go, yes. Perfect timing. I need that person to speak something into my life right now. Or do they go, oh boy, here comes the cold water committee. <laughs> that person that just reminds me of all my sins and where I'm falling short and all they want to do is tell me, you know, how bad a person I am. Encourage. Build up. And finally, yeah, these kids, boy, if I, if I ever find out that someone is not encouraging and building up our children here at Heritage, we're going to have a problem. Just let me say that. So if you're involved in children ministry or youth ministry and you happen to see my kid run and you think you shouldn't run, <coughs> now let me say, if my kid lies or he hits your kid, okay, or he says something real disrespectful to you, please spank him. <laughs> we do that in our home. Sorry if you don't, but it's okay. But but don't, don't discourage these children from, from growing up in Christ. Don't make them think that Christianity is not fun or boring or, or they have to be in some, some way that is your tradition that Jesus had nothing to say about. Okay? Encourage and build up, please. I can't even find my place. I'm so mad. I'm all over the place today. Okay, finally this, number three. The church on mission is active in discipleship through teaching. Verse 25 says this, so Barnabas went to Tarsus. Okay, he left, and he had to cross the water even a little bit unless he went way around to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, and they did what? <coughs> Taught a great many people. Taught, same word. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them all the things I commanded you. And in Antioch, the disciples first called Christians. Barnabas knew Saul. If you've been reading and keeping up with this, he had already had an introduction to Saul. He probably knew that Saul's calling was to the Gentiles, and here we got a church full of Gentiles. He knew that Saul was a bridge builder, someone that knew the scripture and could communicate it to a diverse group of people. What's interesting to me is that Barnabas had a chance here to kind of like become more famous than he ended up being. He could have been the leader of this new church at Antioch all by himself. But instead he shared the load with the more gifted teacher. In fact, at, after this point, instead of the little, you know, these little headings in your Bible that someone wrote, you know, like for a little bit we see Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and then it goes, Paul and Barnabas actually changed. 
He didn't have to do that, but he knew he needed a partner in ministry. So he went again. We got to teach all these new believers. We got to teach them. We can't just, you know, like let one person be in charge and hope that everything goes well. No, we got to get good people in to teach them and encourage them and grow them up so that they can go do those same things. Ministry partners are awesome. I've been blessed. Man, I've had some partners in ministry. When we first started ministry, I was like 21 years old. I had my brother, Jonathan, y'all know him. Uncle Willie, well, we call him Uncle because they call him Uncle, the kids. His, I don't call him Uncle Willie. Um, <laughs> Willie in India, that's how y'all know him. Clint in Poland. Okay, that was our ministry. We had a ministry called Face Down Ministries. And, man, we got to travel all over this country leading kids and worship and preaching and teaching these teenagers. We would work 10 to 12 weeks in a row in the summer of camps. Ministry with them was so much fun. And we was sharpening. You know, we talk about iron sharpening, iron, that was sharpening. We all knew each other since we were kids, so we knew all of our things about each other. We were completely alike. We all came from the same place. We all liked the same sports, the same teams. We all made the same mistakes as kids. And, and we, were, we were in ministry. And then as that was coming to an end, God saw fit to give me another partner in ministry. He was not like me. I mean, at all. And I don't want to go... I don't want to go too far into it because that's emotional. But, man, I'm thankful that God would say, you know what, Brian? For these handful of years, you've been ministering with your best buddies and your brothers. For the rest of your life, you're going to minister with Sid Brock. <laughs> and, you know, some of y'all know the funny stories. But if you're new around here, Sid is, you know, a farming, fishing, hunting country boy from the south. And I am not. <laughs> at all I, I am a city dwelling suburban kid with a checkered past <laughs> but let me tell you something being a partner in ministry has been awesome and what um, incredible stories that we have to tell because God chose to use people together rather than what they might be able to accomplish on their own. Let me ask you today, who is it in your life that you go, you know what, I could see that person as more than a brother or more than a sister. I could see that person as a ministry partner. Who's that person that you could go to and say, hey, I've been thinking. What could you and me do together for the kingdom that we couldn't do by ourselves? Now, that's a spiritually mature conversation. You might totally turn off your friend, but what if you like your friend's like, man, I've been thinking the same thing. Well, how could we change our neighborhoods, our places of work? Hmm. So he goes and gets his new ministry partner, Saul, later to be called Paul, and they spend a year there teaching. Teaching is a critical part in the discipleship process. I've already told you, Jesus told them to do that in the Great Commission. Listening to Christian music alone does not create mature believers. Half the stuff they play on the radio, the words don't even make sense. If, if you listen to them, they don't even come from the Bible. I'm not really mad about Christian music, but that is true. They, just showing up on Sunday morning for a worship gathering does not create a mature believer. Did you know that? No, we need to know we need to know knowledge. We need to learn how to apply God's word 
in our life. So instruction or teaching is an important role in this process. Okay, don't leave that out. Paul would say later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It was just Paul taught Timothy and then he would teach someone who would then go and teach someone else. Multiplication. Barnabas and Saul dedicated a year of their lives to train up these new believers so they would be prepared to be on mission themselves. Is there anyone that you would be willing to invest a year of your life in so that they could become a disciple, so they could come to know Jesus, know his teachings, learn how to apply those teachings in their life, and then go and teach other people the same thing? That's kind of the mission. And if I'm being honest, a lot of us have said, I choose not to accept it. Want the reward of heaven, just not sure that I want to be part of the team that's on the mission. I love the last sentence in our passage this morning. It goes, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They didn't call themselves that. Okay, it wasn't like they got jerseys and, and said, hey, we're starting a new group. We're good Christians. No, these other people were going, look, these guys look like Jesus Christ. They're Christians. I love that. See, to this point, this whole story up to this point, all of that, we got these two groups of people. We got Jews and Gentiles. We got people that are, you know, the Israelites, God's chosen people, the family of Abraham. We got everybody else. And even in the beginning of this chapter, that's kind of what we're looking at. We've got Jews and Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, these followers of Jesus here in Antioch were so different from the culture around them that the citizens had to come up with like a third classification of people. Something totally new. Since these Jesus followers were, were from different cultures, they weren't just Jews. They weren't all Israelites. But since some of them were Jews who had converted from Judaism, they weren't all just Gentiles. So they had to be called something different. Third race of people, worshiping together from different nations. People called them Christians. Man, I just wonder, I know most people around us, they don't really know much about Jesus. But if you could like take the non-Christian and, and give them a complete history lesson to where it stuck all about Jesus... Would they look at us and go, they must be Christians because they look like Jesus Christ? These Christians in Antioch, they left nobody out. They had this single-minded approach to sharing the gospel with everyone. And because of that single-minded approach, because of having this one mission together, they were effective in evangelism and they were active in discipleship. Guys, if you want to be part of Heritage Community Church... Church on mission, we have to do those things. One of my favorite parts about this story is we got no idea who these guys were. Verse 20, but there were some of them, not important enough to figure out their names, just some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. And that's it. 
Not Peter, not James, not John. They were still hanging out back in Jerusalem. Not even Barnabas, not even Paul. Just some dudes from Cyprus and Cyrene. Not Pastor Sid. Not Pastor Melvin, the youth pastor. Just some guys and girls who were willing to take serious the mission of Jesus and take it to the, to the rest of the world. Are you that kind of person? I like to think some days I am, and then I think, honestly, probably some days I'm not. But man, I want to be. And if you would want to be, then maybe we could be bold enough to be partners in ministry together. You with me? Let's pray. Father, you are the light of the world. You are that light that fills us. And I know that you want us to take your light to those who don't know it, those who are in darkness. You are the way, the truth, and the life. The only way that we can be set free from the bondage of sin and death. And shame on us, Father, for not being excited to tell other people that's such an important message. Encourage us, strengthen us, make us knowledgeable of your gospel and your word so that we can share it with those around us. Help us to love people enough that we would say to them, Jesus loves them, and teach them about their Savior. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross, for grace and mercy. We love you, Lord. Amen.